Hello, Mage fans. This is Mage the Podcast, the podcast where we work hard towards ascension so you don't have to. I'm Adam Simpson, and I'm joined today by Terry Robinson, the unflappable host. How are you doing today, Terry? I am excited to talk about the best Mage book. The only book that is better is Ascension, and the only book better than that is Masters of the Art. All three of those are saucy hot takes for me. This opinion does not represent the opinions of Mage the Podcast. Come at me, though. <laughs> okay. Well, you'll certainly get your chance to discuss the book today. Terry is referring to the Euthanatos Tradition book, and this was the first one that was published uh, during the second edition of Mage. In the Tomes of Magic series, we go through the books published for Mage in the order that they were published, or at least as close as we can get to that. Uh, but today we've got something a little different. Terry and I have been on a techno-magic kick for some time now, but today we're crossing over to the mystical side, and we conducted a Twitter poll to see what our listeners would like to hear about, and Euthanatos one out, or euthanatos, as some people say. Thank you, Adam. And <laughs> that one out. So today we're going to get a little bit morbid. Perhaps not as morbid as some people think. And we're going to discuss this tradition. We decided that because they won out in the Twitter poll, we would pander to the masses. I mean, give our discerning listeners exactly what they want to hear. So we're going to skip from 1994 forward to 1997 when tradition book Euthanatos came out. And I'd like to just kick it off by asking Terry to give us his impression of the book and walk us through the sections. It's so good. Also, I think I think the pronunciation of euthanatos is one of those cases where everyone is like, it doesn't matter. None of these are preferred to any other, but you're wrong. So <laughs> I am. You know, in the, I just might be. Yeah, I'm in. I'm, I'm in the Euthanatos camp. Generally, in Greek, the the third from last, uh, the antipenultimate syllable gets gets emphasis, but it's a made up word. So so at the end of the day, who cares? Euthanatoi, zemisi, and so on. But this book came out in '97, and man, is that jump apparent? So we've been going through the Tomes of Magic series, and sometimes we'll be like. Oh, with this book, there's a marked change in the number of semicolons used. You can really see the evolution of the author's style. But with like a three-year jump like that, it is in stark relief how the book changes. So after we get through the initial page XX stuff where it just like lists who wrote what and stuff, we open with a inaccurate quote, which doesn't bode well. If you're looking for a reason to hate on the book, start there. The opening quote by Jesus is not from Luke chapter two, verse 52, but chapter 11. So prove to all your mage friends how cool you are by pointing that out at your next mage cocktail party. I will put my biases on the table and I love this book. I love the Euthanatoi as a kid when the Traditions Gathered books were coming out. I was waiting for whichever one contained the Euthanatos within it and it was the last one and boy howdy. And then I got it. I cracked it open. I went to that back section and I'm like, oh shit, this just got real. This book is almost written entirely within world fiction which is something of a departure compared to some of the other texts, not necessarily. And the framing narrative is the fall of the House of Helicar. The House of Helicar was introduced in the Book of Chantries. Go to our episode on that if you're kind of curious where it got started. The House of Helicar was the Chantry for the Consanguinity of Eternal Joy, which was a massive cabal, very potent, that existed in, I guess it was the Shade Realm of Entropy, right, on Cerberus. And their leader, Vormas Grand Harvester of Souls, which, best title ever, by the way. Yeah, um, very good. <laughs> he 
over time becomes tainted with a special kind of uh, of your taint and he wants to dethrone the wheel of creation to prevent his own death he realized what he has done and he understands the karmic repercussions of it so his goal is to remove the wheel from the axis of creation and prevent the life death cycle from continuing i don't know if we specifically know that at this point everything is brought together with the final book in the series ascension and here it lays out those occurrences through the trial of Theora Hetrick, a member of Freedom Razor's Cabal. And she was an apprentice that was did absolutely ghastly things, and it outlays her trial. Now, this framing narrative, I ate it up because you get all nine prime eye, you get the goings-on of Horizon. I loved the additional characters, Mitzi Zimmerman, Senex amazing. Adam didn't necessarily feel the same. You had thoughts about the frame narrative of it being a trial, I think. Well, yeah. Um, I remember back when the book came out and I read through it, and I really liked the ideas presented in earlier books where they said that awakened society and culture was different from sleeper society and sleeper culture. And of course, one real reason for that is there are a lot less awakened people than there are sleepers. Uh, But there are other reasons too. And when I was reading through this book, uh, I remember the introduction was a late 20th century American courtroom played out exactly in the Horizon Chantry. Now, not just a Horizon Realm, but the Horizon Realm called Horizon Chantry, which is the headquarters of the Council of Nine Mystic Traditions. And some people really liked that, and I just did not like that. I thought that it was less creative, less interesting. It's like you're, you're telling me that the mystic mages out at Horizon Chantry conduct their affairs exactly like late 20th century Americans. I mean, detail for detail with courtroom. I can't accept this. I I need it to be different for it to be interesting to me. It does raise the obvious question that if you have the nine primi present, you probably have access to three masters each of mind and time and correspondence and spirit and entropy. Like, there, <laughs> it, it's one of those weird things, like when you look at science fiction and you say, is that the future? Is that really what it's going to be like? And the answer is obviously no. We are just projecting the now onto the future. In Star Trek, the moment you have teleporters, the ship should be the size of a soccer ball and everyone should be held in pattern buffers until you have to do an away mission where you just beam someone down and you beam down a new copy of them if they have to, like, take a dump or, 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 or something like that. And mage should theoretically be the same way. My criticism of Dungeons & Dragons was always, in a world that actually had magic and dragons, it would not look like this. And yes, it does make perfect sense that like if you have access to the very strings of reality, you probably wouldn't lay it out a la a courtroom drama. So I can, I, I can certainly understand that. I'm trying to hold back the halo effect I have for this book. We get through the introduction. We get introduced to all the main characters. And then we get history of the group. This is done by the Rinpoche Indria Tech Steng guiding the apprentice Julia through where the apprentice is guided through the history and it is done largely in first person. So you have a group that leans heavily on the idea of reincarnation and you get one of my favorite lines from the section where Rinpoche says, or the Rinpoche, I don't know if it's a title or an appellation. Anyway, says, I will die today, but the march will continue. How ah, so good. <laughs> and it leads to the history of the Himalaya Wars, which is this giant conflict that takes place between the Uthanatoi and the Akashic Brotherhood, where one says, hey, you shouldn't touch the wheel. The wheel is sacred. And the Uthanatoi are like, we need to touch the wheel. There's gunk on the wheel. And if we don't get the gunk off the wheel, the wheel's not going to spin good. And the Akashics are like, 
I'm going to kick you in the face. And uh, that happens for something like 600 years. You have the foundation of the nine mystic traditions, which is interesting because I feel like it's one of the few texts that really gives us details about the actual foundation project and the, the grand convocation where, where everyone comes together. Then we go through the inner workings of the group, and that is done, again, through dialogue or cross-examination in this courtroom setup, and it's broken down into days. And then we get to move on into a big old section on sex, which we will, we will get to later. And then next, a, a list of how they view the outside groups in the same way you get, you get the standard list of stereotypes and how they believe that other magical entities or night folk operate. And I think this is the one where we get the, uh, the statement on, on mummies. Are mummies stuck on the wheel or do they ride it like experts? Which was one of the cases where I vaguely remembered something and someone said something weird on the internet. And then I spent two hours trying to track down the original source and it was page 43. Um, and then finally we get characters and the key players. We get a bunch of magical practice information. We finally get a system for Jor, which was vaguely mentioned prior. That proves to be a precursor to the uh, system of resonance that was introduced and revised. Then we get a big section on weapons. And and for the first time, my, my what would it have been? My 13-year-old brain learns about the Hungamunga, which is this 17-bladed seemingly throwing weapon that does strength plus five damage because why not? Um, <laughs> and then we get Rotes and finally a character sheet. And I loved each page a little bit more than the one before it. We also, since it's relatively late, I feel like there is a disproportionate number of callbacks and references to other things in the greater world of darkness. It was one of the books that suggested that the Nefandi were winning the Ascension War. It was one of the books that tied together multiple lines by mentioning the Talmahi Ra, the, the, the black hand from Vampire the Masquerade. And that those were the main sections. How do you want to tackle it from here, boss? <laughs> well, no, I, I always enjoy hearing you uh, talk through the sections and, and tell us uh, your point of view on that. As for me, when I think of the different sections of the book, uh, my main criticism was um, a lot of times these books open up with an introduction that has some in-character fiction. And sometimes it's, it's good and sometimes it's not as good. And uh, with most of the books, they go from there to a more what is it, a more general framing device where they have like letters and posts between different characters or they will just have the author talking in a, a third person omnipresent voice and I, I actually prefer that I, I like to see the world of mage uh, from that perspective this book the the fiction was used as a framing device for pretty much the whole book except for the appendix and I did not like that as much. Um, I thought it was sticking more and more to the view of just um, a small handful of was a signature characters in the world of darkness. And I, I like to take a broader view of Mage. And so I, I didn't enjoy that quite as much. Uh, also, the history chapter, two things about that that were really not my favorites was, uh, first off, it gave a very harsh view of the Akashic Brothers. And later in the book, it gives a very harsh view of the Order of Hermes. And it's like, okay, I understand that Bricado and Kathleen Ryan don't like these traditions as much as the more open, I guess you could say, more disorganized mystical kind of traditions. But um, I, I thought it was unwarranted. And uh, they can kind of hide behind the fact that, oh, well, this is just the point of view of these specific uh, signature characters who are speaking. And it's like, I, I think it was the author or the authors in this case. And so I, I didn't like to see that. Yeah, within each book, we get a stereotype section where it is generally the overly negative view that each group has on every other group, where it is a case of, it, it kind of reminds me that within the Catholic Church, the Pope periodically issues a statement on the liturgical adequacy of other 
groups. And it's kind of funny because the Pope points out the shortcomings of every other religion. And to the surprise of no one, he the Pope indicates that all religions besides Catholicism are in some way lacking. And, and here we get something very similar where it's like, well, these people are obviously wrong for this reason. But yeah, it does lack the omnipresent narrator point of view that we kind of expect as being the neutral arbiter of truth. So everything here is either a stereotype of another group, but also the fact that when we talk about ourselves, we generally talk ourselves up at least a little. So it's one of those cases where we're like, ah, oh, we're not all death mages that are that are focusing on death. And you're like, ah, numerically, there's a bunch of you running around and you can't know true Scotsman your way out of it. You can't be like, well, anyone who's not constantly fighting for truth, justice in the American way is an American. Well, yeah, they are. They're still citizens. Deal, um, and that the same thing kind of happens. Kind of happens here. So that I can certainly understand. Also, the the way that uh, the master was teaching the apprentice, uh, I think her, I think her name was Julia, about the history of the Euthanados was he kept showing these super hologram movies of the past, and it's like I appreciate that they're bringing some sphere magic into their teaching methods, but it, this was a bit much to me. It, it actually reminded me of um, my lazy high school teachers who didn't want to teach, so they just showed movies all the time. It, it's just really. <laughs> Really not how I would imagine any awakened history lesson, but um, you know, some people would think that's really fun, and I'm, I don't want to tell them that it's it's wrong or something. It just seemed quite off to me. Well, it combines two things. It combines lazy teacher method of showing movies, plus the fact that these are essentially home movies, because in many cases, uh, the Rinpoche is showing tableau from his own reincarnations so at a certain point it's like and this is when doris and i saw the great pyramids and this is this is us during the battle of waterloo <laughs> so yeah again your opinions are entirely valid they're wrong but they're entirely valid and that's that's fine i wanted to mention how as a mage fan this book was not my favorite uh, for a reason that i think is rather valid when this book came out I was very interested to read more about the, the Euthanados. Uh, I thought they were a very interesting group. I liked them, and I wanted to hear more about them. And really, between 1993, when Mage came out, and 1997, when this tradition book came out, very, very little was ever written about the Euthanados. I mean, we, we see some of their rotes and some of their talismans, and from that we're supposed to extrapolate what the group is like. The only sort of a look we get at them is the House of Helicar in the Book of Chantries. And even back when I was younger and I was reading that, I got the impression that this must be a rogue group because they don't match up with the two-page description in the first edition core book. So they must be off doing their own thing. When this tradition book came out, I read through the book. And I remember at, uh, on the last page closing the book and thinking to myself, what, what is this? Where did this come from? How did uh, I, I get here? To... This is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful wife. <laughs> Basically, yeah, it, it was it was one of those weird moments. It's like, and I turned back to the first edition core book and I read the two pages on the Euthanados, and it's like, okay, this confirms my suspicion. This is a total rewrite. This is a completely different group that with the same name. I feel like to a certain extent, though, that the Euthanatos suffer from like the Slytherin effect, where you're like, wait, why would you obviously have the bad guys as part of your group? I think my favorite comic on this was a conversation, a, a fake conversation between the four houses, founders from Harry Potter, and be like, we should create a school, and it should combine four different houses that exemplify courage, 
cunning, miscellaneous, and evil. And it, it very much felt the same way that, like, when you read the first edition Euthanatos reference in, like, the original core book, where it just, it's just this list of rumors. And in the meeting section, it's like, the Euthanatos get together on the first day of every month to propose who they should kill. And you're like, I don't know if that's morbid or badass. I'm thinking morbid at this point. And then they're like, maybe this is completely unplayable and is just promoting a game where people run around killing mortals. And maybe that's not, not what we want Mage the Ascension to be. I feel like groups periodically get their, that rewrite in the same way that like first edition Celestial Chorus was kind of written into a corner. And I think almost of necessity, they needed to open that up. But I interrupted you. Sorry. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up because some people do have that perspective. They they look at that uh, initial two-page write-up in 1993 and they say, well, this is no good. We can't do this. But other people like me and a number of people that I spoke with looked at that and said, whoa, this is really interesting. This is really different. This is a very different, very non-Western perspective. And to add this to the mix makes it a much more interesting mix. Uh, I remember looking through the uh, early write-up on the Euthanados from 1993 and saying, this is a group that has a very different outlook on life, the universe, death, uh, their place in it, and uh, what people should or shouldn't be doing. Their value system is just really, really different. And so I thought it was so interesting to either have players try to play one of these characters, or even if they didn't, to meet NPCs in my chronicle who were euthanados and have them confront a really different point of view and basically deal with it. It's like, okay, I'm talking to someone who has really different morals, a really different outlook on things, but he's in my, you know, council of, of nine. Can I get along with him? Does he have a point that maybe I've overlooked? Uh, maybe I misjudged him. I really liked the possibilities that came from this. And so I was very disappointed to read this tradition book from 1997. And they said, oh, hey, total misunderstanding. Yeah, all that other stuff, I mean, that was just that was just nasty rumors. Uh, just toss it all out. And so I was like, oh, come on. I felt like it was the gentrification of a tradition. It's like, <laughs> oh, come on, please. Please don't, don't throw out all the stuff that's interesting and replace it with just more of the same. The initial core idea of this really looked like it was the idea of what if the the thuggy cult or the thuggy cults that so many people were talking about back in the 1800s. If, if you read stuff that was written in the 1800s, there were a number of people around the world talking about these thuggy cults in India. And they were just, they were shocked. They were surprised. They were trying to understand it. It's like, what, what, what are these groups about? We just don't get this. These are, are, are these dastardly villains or are they something totally different that we never thought of? And it, it caused uh, a bit of a, a, a ripple through society, at least English-speaking society, back a uh, hundred years and more. And you were so shocked your monocle fell out. Basically, in first edition, yeah, the the core rulebook we have the we it, the, the unifying quote to me is: "Mages of Ethanatos feel that humanity has contemptuously spurned the greatest gift the universe has ever designed to grant, life. Instead of using life." To an ever greater end, humanity, in the opinion of this tradition, has perverted life by sucking it dry of every possibility. Humanity is running out of options, so the Euthanatos mages seek to provide more options by returning certain humans to a more fundamental level of existence, spirit form. These spirits are then eventually reborn into new bodies. With any luck, they retain some memory of their journeys and will hopefully apply this to their next life. So this is the first incarnation of the idea that the fundamental belief of the Euthanatos, if reduced to a bumper sticker would be better luck next time where in this book we very much get the idea of the tradition consisting largely of marginalized groups within cultures that do necessary work that is often frowned upon whether it be morticians or battlefield doctors or people who do hospice care there's certainly a bit of a pivot there 
Yeah, the first edition view was that the euthanados killed people to end karmic impediments and restore possibilities. And this was a very different outlook from Westerners then and now. And so the the idea was the euthanados would go out and they would kill people who were not often were not dastardly villains or, you know, critically ill patients. They were just regular, uninteresting people going about their daily life. And a euthanatos would show up and say, my mystic insights tell me that uh, you are wasting your life and you need to be returned to the cycle. And so they basically hunted down and killed innocent people who didn't want to die. And so the rest of the eight traditions in the Council of Nine were totally perplexed by this. They just didn't get it. It's like, how can you explain this? How can you justify what you're doing? And the point of view of the euthanados was, look, we have mystic insights that you guys don't have. And to be perfectly honest, we don't care what you think. We do things differently. And you're just going to have to deal with it. And again, I thought this was a really, really uh, interesting way to grapple with very, very different ideas. And I'm not, and of course, one person is going to say, well, not all Indian people like that. Well, of course not. Good grief. My wife was born and raised in India. I went over in 2000 and found her in Hyderabad, India and married her. And now uh, all my in-laws are Indian. You really make that, to- <laughs> you really make it fat sound like a gypsy had revealed to you that you would find love in Hyderabad and then you just moved there to find your wife. And if that happened, that is amazing. But that was well, a little, little different, little different story, but I'm not going to go into that now. But basically I have been to India many times and because I have family there, I've stayed, I've had like three month long stays where I was not in a hotel. I was staying with family. And so I'm not saying I'm an expert on India. Of course not. But you have some boots on the ground experience. I would never I would never believe that all Indians believe like the euthanados. No, of course not. I know that. But to be able to say that uh, look, there's a really really different point of view. It comes from a really different culture. And there are some there are some reasons for this. Uh, one idea is, is simply reincarnation. In uh, Buddhism and Hinduism, they, they have believed in reincarnation for a long time. And there are different ways that people can interpret this and grapple with this and make it a part of their thinking. But one, only one possible idea is you can get into this thinking that, hey, death is not so bad. Death is not the end. When someone dies, they just go through a cycle. They come back to live on this earth again. So a person could justify murder through that. They could say hey, when I'm killing people, I'm not really ending their life. I'm not doing such a bad thing as you ignorant people think I'm doing. I'm just pushing them into their next life, which in all probability is going to be better than this one. So why are you getting so upset over this? Now, I'm not saying that people from India all believe this. Of course not. But it is interesting to find a group of people who have this very different perspective and then bring them into conflict with your players in your chronicle and have them have to deal with a very different point of view and think through a very different way of seeing the world. Although it does bring up some difficulties with their perspective, they talk about the Agama Ray and the Agama Te Sojourn, which is the part of initiation where a apprentice or an initiate is brought into the Shadowlands to experience the world of the dead. And the phrase they use in multiple cases is never send anyone else to go where you will not step. And it brings up an interesting problem because everything they do 
depends on their metaphysics being true. Now, obvious, every, obviously, every group falls into that category. Uh, your values are going to be contingent on your view of the world being actually true. But when you're killing people and that's your MO, that can make things real weighty. And cosmologically, we do have the problem that the Shadowlands is the realm of people who haven't moved on. So when they're going to a way station or, or a bus stop, they're not visiting oblivion. They are not visiting transcendence. They are only visiting the people that still had mortal hangups. They are not, that is not the realm to which they necessarily send people. If they do, they have fundamentally failed because that is the realm of people who still have stuff to take care of. So it is interesting that they are not actually experiencing oblivion, but I suppose it's kind of the closest they could get. And in our pre-conversation, you were talking about how this leans heavily on the fact that in first edition, it was kind of given that every group believed in reincarnation, which points out an interesting problem in Mage, which is brought up in several places, that the Avatar and the Soul are not necessarily the same thing. We have very good evidence that Avatars go through some sort of cycle, but we don't necessarily know that the Soul that it is a part of or the Soul portion of the greater psyche also makes that trip again. So it could be the case that the euthanatoi are fundamentally wrong in that aspect, and I would be curious to see ways in which that could be explored. Although I love first edition and a lot of things about it, one of my big criticisms against first edition is if you take the core book and really read it through, you will find several places where they say, yeah, reincarnation is totally true. Every mage knows it, and there's no debate over this, which I thought was poorly done. I, I thought it even um, makes it impossible for certain traditions to hold their own beliefs. And one of the really great things that Brucato did for us when he came in and gave us a second edition and, and started reworking first edition before that edition was done was he said, no, let's let's make this less cut and dry. Let's make the, there's more unknowns here. There's more discussion. There's more different points of view. And I really appreciated that. It, it makes, uh, for example, a celestial chorus, if, if reincarnation is totally 100% believed, then the celestial chorus is kind of impossible. But uh, with Bricado's improvements on the situation, I really appreciated that. And I thought it, it opened up a lot more cool ideas and possibilities for Mage. It is important to introduce a slight blurriness to not assume that everything, that reincarnation as we traditionally think of it is what's happening all the time. And it's kind of interesting, like how many cultures have a version of reincarnation, like even in the Christian West and the pre-Socratic philosophers of Greece, the idea of metempsychosis, that there is some sort of thing that transmigrates after death, which led into the Latin notion of, I think, palingenesis, which is some sort of rebirth. Pardon me, that's Greek, not Latin. I mean, the Rosicrucians, the Neomanichaeans, the Albigensians, they all believe, despite being Christian groups, notionally in some sort of form of, of reincarnation. You have the, the notion of Gilgul. I think more accurately, that is some sort of reference to rebirth. I would need to do my homework on that. It is an interesting case of saying there is this phenomenon that we know occurs and then overgeneralizing that. We know that avatars for some people seem to come back and then some people take the leap to be like, oh, all mortal souls are continuously reincarnated, which proves problematic in a world with a growing population. So Yeah, and you can get into a lot of discussions about uh, reincarnation and how different traditions would actually approach that. But uh, for now, I just wanted to finish off um, a few other reactions I had to the book before we can move on and talk about the sects or, or subgroups of the, the Euthanatos. One thing that I wanted to point out was the first edition Euthanatos really looked like a 
bridge between the most popular World of Darkness game, Vampire, and Mage. It really gave me the impression that if there was going to be a mixed group, uh, if there were a lot of people who wanted to play vampire characters in the Chronicle, and one person said, well, I want to be a mage, but now I have to explain why I'm hanging out with vampires. It's like, well, if you take a first edition Euthanatos, they have a fascination with vampires, and they have uh, you know some some skills and some knowledge that they would have less of a reason to fear vampires than other mages and so you could you could understand a euthanatos mage running around with a group of vampires and holding his own and so uh, i think there are a lot of examples throughout the different world of darkness books of a tribe clan whatever that uh, in its basic concept there's this idea of a bridge with another group from another game and uh, that was basically de-emphasized in this uh, Euthanatos tradition book. They make a passing mention of vampires here and there, but in both first edition and second edition core books, they mention that the Euthanatos are really fascinated with vampires. They want to know all about them. They're really basically into vampires. And then you read this tradition book, and it's like they just forgot about that. It's like, eh, we changed our minds. So one thing I do want to say, though, is they mention the Nagaraja of the Tal Mahera, the true black hand, and uh, I know that vampire fans are kind of divided in their opinion of the, the true black hand. There are some people that think it shouldn't be in the game and some people who think it should. But, but putting that aside for a moment, uh, I really liked this mention. I thought it was just very, very interesting. Uh, I, my er, ears uh, perked up, uh, so to speak, when I was reading this passage to say that the Nagaraja in ancient times had more of a connection to the Euthanatos. And then they kind of transferred over into vampirism and got involved with the true black hand. And to this day, there's, there's tension between the two groups and, and more intimate knowledge between the two groups. And the Euthanatos have a desire to hush up some of this knowledge that they have and some of the connections that they have going back centuries. I, I thought that was really, really cool. Just an explainer for the audience, the Taumahira, or in Gamelish, the Hand Without Sun, um, sometimes referred to as the Menace Nigrum, which just kind of sounds menacing and awesome in the way that certain Latin phrases do. And they also have a symbol, which is a black hand, which looks remarkably similar to the symbol used to represent marauders, except for like reversed. It's the other hand. And I remember the first time I encountered it, I'm like, game got marauders in it? Interesting. But turns out I was wrong. Anyway, they are, a, uh, they are something between a conspiracy and a death cult devoted to the worship of a group of beings known as the Aralu, which are this collection, supposedly, of antediluvians that are in the underworld in the forgotten city of Enoch that are controlling wraiths and manipulating the wheel to the best of their knowledge and trying to trying to purge vampire society of certain elements in vampire they were introduced as this kind of almost over-the-top group during the era of vampions where you could theoretically have a vampire with high humanity that was secretly a good guy and one of their goals was they were saying that one of the groups of vampires, the Samisi, their power vicissitude, which allows them to reshape people's bodies and such, was actually caused by an umbral entity that was tainting everything. And whenever a vampire used vicissitude on another vampire, the taint spread further. And their goal was to destroy this umbral entity. And that came to a screeching halt in Wraithy Oblivion's End of Empires, where literally a relic nuclear device is dropped on Enoch. And the author of that section of Ends of Empire 
listed it as one of the most satisfying moments they had ever had as a writer that they got to just like kind of clean up this weird ass side thing that had that had spun off but more to Adam's point yeah one of the things that's nice about the books is I get them because the authors are vastly more creative than I am so anytime you have someone that says hey there is this weird connection that you can plumb or this group doesn't work the way you think it does or here's this weird side thing that you can introduce I think that's awesome it your chronicle loses nothing if you operate it in a world where the Tao Mahira does not exist. Your chronicle may gain nothing if it operates in a world where the Tao Mahira exists, but it's just another option. And if, if, if it's fascinating to you, it is a it is a great road to go down. Yeah, I remember when uh, the Tao Mahira was first introduced to Vampire the Masquerade, it was in the book uh, Dirty Secrets of the Black Hand. And I was quite active online back at the time when it first came out. And I was uh, involved with the Palace software that was officially started and backed by the White Wolf Company before they let go of it. And there were a number of White Wolf employees who were saying, uh, yeah, this Dirty Secrets of the Black Hand, we had this contractor who doesn't work at our office. He, he wrote this book and it got published. And then a lot of us came to see it and we, we really don't like what's in here. And now we have to do damage control. And I talked to a lot of people online that said, yeah, I, I don't like this book. I'm, I'm looking forward to the damage control. And I felt like the odd man out because I read the book and I, I thought it was very interesting. I really liked what was in there. And I had to realize, well, you know what? Not everybody thinks like you do. So. Well, I've been thinking about ways to describe how you work versus the way I feel a lot of storytellers do. And this is going to be psychoanalysis time with Terry and Adam. And my, my best analogy for Adam and the way he works so far is you're at a party and there's a bowl of mixed nuts. And someone looks at him and goes, oh my God, I hate Brazil nuts. Why would you make a mixed nut thing with Brazil nuts? I love pecans. I hate Brazil nuts. And that person just completely skips the bowl. And Adam's like, oh, I hate Brazil nuts. I'll have all these pecans. And he just eats around the Brazil nuts. And they're the, <laughs> and just whatever source is out there, Adam will take the part that he likes. He also does the genius thing, which is to say, well, they only have one group for India. India consists of roughly a billion people. I imagine there's 15 other groups that we just don't know about. And I'm going to do the research and set them up where other people are like, me. They only give us one. I'm incapable of creativity. Me. Not to say that the authors don't have some obligation to bring that kind of diversity to the table, but that is that, that has been my uh, my experience of Adam, and I super appreciate being on a podcast with you for that reason because I am very much in the I can't eat this. It contains Brazil nuts. Me category. Um, and I didn't know you were involved with Palace Software. Holy shit! I remember using that when I still played the Star Wars collectible card game, and that was the software they had, and I was some little floating head developer of wraith came on and he didn't announce himself on purpose he wanted to <laughs> kind of come on incognito and he started asking me all these questions about wraith and so i had read the first edition core book so i started talking with him about it and uh he's asking me do you play it's like well well no i haven't set up a game well, why haven't you set up a game yet and i'm like oh well you know I've, I've got these other games going they, they take more of my time then i found out it was richard dansky i was like oh okay that is so cool <laughs> that is so cool i liked him i thought he was a great guy but okay, okay, getting back to Euthanatos, I, I have uh, digressed, and I apologize to our listeners for that. I just wanted to to sum up uh, one of my disappointments with this uh, Euthanatos tradition book, and, and I recognize that I think rather differently from, from Terry on this, but I just appreciate being able to express my own opinion. Again, I was very interested in this notion of a very different, a radically different point of view, a radically different uh, system of morality confronting my players. And then when I read this tradition book, um, it had changed so much that it really looked like the authors were saying, hey, the euthanados, even though they are based on a tradition that is older than recorded history and from the other side of the world, they've got 
Western morals and values just like all of us Americans. In fact, they're better at it than you are. <laughs> and, and so it's like, yeah, okay, this, this takes a lot of wind out of my sail. Um, but again, that's my opinion, and I realize I'm going to have a very different opinion uh, from the other listeners. So I'm just glad that we can all get together and uh, say what we think. And, you know, you listeners can uh, feel free to uh, write in to podcast at gmail.com and let us know what you think. And if you think I'm full of it, you can let me know. Although I, I do have feelings too, so yeah. let's, let's regulate that a little bit. <laughs> so it does bring up an interesting point, though, of how how big can you make the tent before you're no longer a unified group? I wonder if there is such a problem of letting too, people, too many people into the Council of Mystic Traditions. Like, at the extreme end, you can say that the technocracy and the Nefandi just have a slightly different morality system because obviously they think what they're doing is right. So at some point we have to say, no, there is this super family of ethics that we consider to be somewhat cooperative in terms of what we are going to allow. And anyone who who beckons to that can be part of a group. And I feel like some of the edges that were cut off the euthanatos were an attempt to have that happen, to make it like, okay, we need to explain why this group is together as part of the council and how they've managed to stay together for so long. And it brings up a, a, an interesting question. And this this reflection on what do people think of us in the uh, stereotype section where they talk about their views of others, uh, they're talking about their relationship with the Sons of Ether and the Virtual Adepts. And the line is, we seem half Nefandi and they seem half technocratic. And that was the uh, the narrator's way of saying, yeah, we, we are all kind of suspicious of one another. And I'm, I'm perfectly fine with kind of shaving the edges off to make it work in the same way that there really aren't a lot of practitioners of, say, uh, Mayan blood magic that are still in the traditions. I mean, interestingly, there are a few and they're in the euthanatoy, but I feel as if there is a moral core that you can only get so distant from before the traditions start saying, eh, are we really on the same page here? Uh, but that's just a guess. Mm hmm. Yeah. Now, I, I've said a number of things about the book I didn't like, and I should uh, reciprocate and uh, say some things about the book uh, that I did like because I did not have a totally negative view of it. There were some things in here that I thought were just great. One of the new things in this book was making the euthanados more international. And I, I really liked how they gave the name Chakravanti in singular is Chakravant. Uh, that is not a, a sect or a subgroup inside of the euthanados, uh, not, not truly a sect or a subgroup. It's just a descriptive term for the euthanados that come from India or were trained by the tradition coming out of India. So they have a more traditional, uh, you might say, Hindu uh, Indian point of view. And then you have the other groups from Africa, from Greece, from Europe, etc., that have uh, a less Indian point of view, more of what you might say a Western or perhaps international point of view. And it makes sense to apply the name euthanados to them. And so it, it brought all of these groups together. Basically, the book says before the convocation, some storytellers say during the great convocation of the Council of Nine Mystic Traditions, the Indian Chakravanti noticed these other groups that had an emphasis on, you could say, death magic, or perhaps you could use the term necromancy, or basically thought in that general direction. And they said, hey, we have some things in common. I noticed that you're a small group and you keep a very low profile because you're concerned about interactions with, with other people, especially with other mages. So let us welcome you into the fold. There's a place for you here and we can be stronger together. And that was totally new for this tradition book. And I really liked it. It made the group more international, more interesting. We get the 
was it the Mad Zimbabwe and the Pomegranate Deme and the Aided from from Celtic lands. And I just thought that was so cool. I really liked that. It made the group more interesting, more multifaceted. Uh, also, the appendix of this book was just dynamite. I just loved the appendix. I, I thought it was better than the appendices of a lot of the other tradition books because it said, hey, look, not only are we going to tell you something about the different foci that your NPCs or your player characters might use, but we're going to give you some new terms for them. We're going to give you some ideas of the thinking behind why someone would use them and what traditions they're a part of. There were some great rotes. Like Terry said, I really liked the unusual, you might say exotic weapons that were introduced here. Uh, the appendix was just full of gems, and it was I recommend it on that alone. This is the book that introduced me to the idea of what a garot was. And again, I was 13, and I thought it was the coolest thing in on the face of the planet and I kept bringing up at school and I'm really surprised you could tell it was a different time that my parents did not get a call after there was a little kid going <laughs> like you could solve this with garrot wire and <laughs> so again I was a budding, budding youth anatos at the time and in an attempt to create that international flavor there is an interesting there is a fundamental tension in the group that it strangely combines the people in a society that were in charge of fate and destiny, almost the the group of seers and advisors, a la the, the Mad Zimbabwe, and those who dealt with death. It is interesting to note that in Mage the Awakening, the entropy sphere is kind of split into a sphere of death and a sphere of fate. And there is, I, I feel as if within the group, there is kind of this uneasy jamming together of the two that I didn't notice created tension until I started learning more about Mage the Awakening. And we have certain subgroups within the Euthanatos that focus differentially on those two things. Like, for instance, they bring up the, the, the Scholars of the Wheel that focus mostly on Avatar genealogies and such. And I wonder, I wonder what it was like when, when you're just a guy and you've just got this giant family tree and then someone else has a, a kipu that is doing the same thing. And I, I feel like it's like discovering that someone else is also into your super weird hobby. And I, I do think there is that kind of weird tension that was not obvious to me again until I saw Mage the Awakening. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up because uh, I uh, interviewed Paul Strack uh, for the podcast, and that has not aired yet. But uh, during that interview, he was telling me about uh, Mage the Awakening, the, the new new world of darkness mage game, which has a different setting from Mage the Ascension. And he was telling me that the entropy sphere was divided up and, and there are 10 spheres, not nine. And I thought that was so interesting because as a mage fan, ever since first edition, I was thinking how um, each of the nine spheres is, is a solid concept except for entropy. Entropy is two concepts jammed together. It is probability and decay, just sort of not together. And the euthanados were the decay part of the equation. And although some people disagree, I saw the syndicate of the technocracy as being the probability side of that. Yeah, in this book, it seemed like the authors were looking at the game rules and saying, well, uh, the euthanatos specialize in entropy, and that is both probability and decay, so we're going to you know, put in a few mentions here and there about how they're really into both sides of that. I, I can understand that justification, but I, I really like, I really want to, actually, in my chronicles, I really want to engage with that idea that, uh, I, if I understood correctly, you brought up of some groups within the euthanatos are more on the decay side and other groups are more on the probability side. That, that sounds very interesting to me. And we get when we get to the Order of Hermes, you have House Fortunae, who 
in their mind, is vying for control of the seat of entropy and want to spin out and be their own proper tradition because they focus on the fate, fortune, probability side of that. It, it does bring up a, a reminder that the distinction between spheres is kind of arbitrary. It's kind of interesting that this is considered to be a group of necromancers in some cases, but to do that, you need spirit, life, and matter. It also brings up the fact that like chemically, the differences between the life and matter spheres should be quite small. And if we are going to properly call this a sphere of entropy, to a certain extent, it should be bound up with the sphere of time as well. But again, that's bringing a certain scientific paradigm. There is the idea of consilience that that knowledge accumulates and tends to point towards a number of fundamental truths. And it just kind of points out that if you stare at many of the spheres long enough, they stop making sense. The entropy sphere is kind of interesting in that it is the only sphere that to affect other things does not need other spheres, but needs a higher level. So to explain that, at entropy 3, you can start directly affecting matter without the uses necessarily of the matter sphere. With entropy 4, you can affect life without directly using the life sphere. And at entropy 5, you're affecting minds without using the mind sphere. So it is weird compared to the other spheres in that the way it does not need those additional spheres for conjunctional effects, but instead requires a higher dot level. And and that is just, again, one of the oddities of the mage system that you can redo. Periodically, I sit down and say to myself, one, what would this game look like if you decided to fundamentally move things around? And one of the questions I like asking is, what would mage look like if there were four spheres, or if there were five spheres, or if there were 16 spheres? And just as a storyteller, you may find it useful to hallucinate your own view of magic to go through it. And maybe we do some future episode on like just listings of alternate spheres in different ways to look at it. Mage Dark Ages, pardon me, Dark Ages Mage had the idea of pillars instead of proper spheres. And most groups got away with just having four of those. There's a yeah. lot of ways of slicing the cake. Yeah. And at this point, it's it's only natural to mention the Ars Magica role-playing game, which was in White Wolf's house for a while before it got pushed out. I think Atlas Games has it now. But, but anyways, that had... Um, more than nine areas of magic, and uh, I believe that there were five verbs and ten nouns, and you would make a spell by putting one of the verbs together with one of the nouns. Uh, a very interesting way of, of dividing things up, and I think rather appropriate for the, the medieval mindset. Yeah, it, it's only natural that when you have a tabletop role-playing game, the way that the rules, the game mechanics are written up, people are going to look at those and focus on those in the mage books of, of all the different editions, they say that the the system of nine spheres is something that exists in the world of mage and that the mages, you know, awakened mages uh, talk to each other and, and know these names of spheres and use them to understand what they're doing. But it also says in several places that this system of nine spheres was invented by mages at some point. And there are some groups that think, hey, this is a really great way of explaining magic and that there are other groups of saying, no, look, this is an idea from you other guys, and I don't like forcing this onto my understanding of magic, and, and we just make polite nods to it when we all get together at council, but you know, when I'm in my own chantry, I, I do things my way. And it, it's good that the books brought that up, but it's only natural that us mage fans are going to look at the rules and the rule books and, and you know, unconsciously move our thinking into those grooves that are set for us. So, yeah, I notice that, but uh, I, I try not to get too uh, unhappy about it. We should have an episode at some point about diegesis and mage, the mage terms that are actually discussed in system, like everyone uses the term spheres or something like that and recognizes that there seem to be roughly nine of them. But no one obviously in the game talks about health levels, but I'm always curious how people in game talk about arcane. 
um, and other attributes like that that obviously have a system and obviously have a real world effect? Or is it the nature of arcane that people don't notice that other people have arcane, which would also <laughs> totally make sense? Or how does a mage have an idea of how much paradox they have? And I, I would love to do an episode on, on, on diegesis. Uh, did you want to talk about uh, the uh, sex within the youth Thanatos? Yeah, yeah. Before we do, uh, one last thing that I really loved about this tradition book was the idea of the Bombay Apadharma, which is a Nafandi group that in the distant past broke off from the Euthanados. And because of that, the Euthanados and the Nafandi have a, uh, that specific group of the Nafandi have a real enmity, and there is some desire to sort of conceal some of those links. I thought that was such a cool idea. And I don't remember hearing about this Nafandi group before this tradition book. So kudos to the authors for putting that one in there as something I'd, I'd love to explore. But, you know, related to that, I noticed a couple of places in this book where it said that the Euthanados hate the Nafandi more than anyone and, and fight hard against them more than anybody. And that seemed odd to me because I can understand why they would be very um, angry at the Bombay Apadharma, but all of the Nafandi groups as a whole, uh, I remember in several places saying that the Celestial Chorus consider themselves the biggest enemy of the Nafandi. And that makes sense to me. I understand why those two groups would look at each other and go, oh no, I just hate you. But when it comes to the Euthanados and the Nafandi, I can understand why they would be against them and they would work against them, of course. But to see them with so much anger and, and so much you know, desire to wipe them out, you know, honestly, I see a lot of overlap between the two groups. And to, to see this, you know, angry whipping up of emotions against the Nafandi, I, I have a harder time explaining that. I feel that it could be one of two things. One, you do have the the fundamental ideological hatred of them, that the whole idea of the Thanatos is that better luck next time, give it another try. And the idea of inverting an avatar fundamentally precludes that from happening. We we kind of operate in a world where we assume that once an avatar is inverted, once an avatar goes through the calls, it is impossible to undo that. And if it's a group that is focused on potential, going through the calls and inverting your avatar is the ultimate example of a one-way trip. It is the ultimate removal of, of possibility. It is the ultimate removal of redemption. Um, and the only solution at that point is Gilgul. And I can also see that it's one of those cases where we use similar methods, like a fixation with death, or at least an access to it, uh, access to spirits, killing people, but they are doing it for very fundamentally different means. And it is not uncommon that someone gets super angry when two people are doing it, doing seemingly similar things, especially from an outside perspective, but one of them is quote unquote right and one of them is quote unquote wrong. I could also see it as being a case where literally everyone thinks they hate the Nafandi the most. Where it's like, no, we hate the Nefandi the most. No, we hate the Nefandi most. And and that's fine. And that is, again, to your point, the fact that all of this is done. There, there's not a lot of material that is like this third-person omniscient narrator that I really like as a, a storyteller. Maybe I enjoy less so as a reader. But we don't get that impartial view. So obviously, when they're talking about their own things, they're going to try and come across as the good guys by saying, no, 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 we hate the Nefandi more than anyone else. Yeah, I just felt like there was this really strong trend in this book to try to make the Euthanados look like the most virtuous, sterling character that you could ever hope to meet. And my thinking was, you know, just, just let them be who they are. Well, why do you have to have this strong impetus to defend them as, as the best of men or the best of people? I mean, why don't you just, you know, say we believe this, we do this, and uh, we are who we are, and if you don't like it, I'm sorry. 
Well, one of the recurring themes that you see in a lot of the tradition books is also the idea that our group is persecuted. Now, this group is interesting in that they have within their own historical canon a 600-year war with another tradition that we don't really get. We kind of get the subtle destruction of the Order of Hermes and the Celestial Chorus against a lot of other groups, but I can kind of see that as giving them kind of a, a bit of a, a victim complex, especially also if you lean into the idea that they view themselves as a tradition that is made of the people in society that do necessary but not necessarily well-regarded work. And I can kind of see that putting a chip on your shoulder. I, I, I feel like in response to you being forced to list the things that you liked about it, I can go through the things that I did not like about this book, if you like. Uh, yeah, I've got one thing to add on sure. uh, after you do that, but, but please uh, let us know. I hated the art. It was. It very much looked like a whole bunch of art that was rejected from the Book of Madness or something like that. You talk about the cycle of birth and death and so on, and I just, it is bloody and it is terrible. And there are sections where out of nowhere you just have like sigils written in blood. And that really goes against seemingly what the group is trying to do. I feel as if the the art and the text did not get along. I guess you could make an argument that that was a that that was an intentional choice to that the art was kind of laying commentary on the side of what Adam says that no, 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 this is a death obsessed group with a different view of everything. The art is going to look slightly off kilter. I thought that the character templates were kind of weak. And in a lot of cases, I feel they, they kind of played into the stereotypes, especially when you combine it into the, uh, especially when you combine it with the art. Yeah, before you move on, sure. uh, I, I had the same impression as you, actually. Um, I, I didn't think of it when I was talking, but yeah, when I was reading through the book, I looked at the artwork and then I read the text and I felt like these don't really jive. They don't really go together. The frame narrative also sometimes makes it hard to look things up. In in some of the books, you will have a thing where it's like, this is our stereotypes, and it'll kind of go boom, 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 boom. And since it's in paragraph form and it's in dialogue form, you have to be able to keep track of it. Also, if you were to just grab this book, it does not necessarily stand alone well. It kind of assumes that you're somewhat invested in the mage metaplot and since it kind of assumes that you're reading these things sequentially, I don't know how well this book would fare if someone were just like, oh, I read the M20 rulebook. I saw this thing on Drive-Thru RPG as part of a collection. It's 10 bucks on sale. Let me grab that. I feel like it would be very confusing and somewhat dizzying to try and piece together how the tradition actually worked from it. I don't think it necessarily stood alone as well as, as some of the other tradition books probably do. So those were those were my big criticisms. I also had difficulty with the fact that I couldn't pronounce a lot of the words, but I mean that's that's just the limitations of me predominantly speaking English. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably. And I can I can concur with uh, with the last point you made. Yeah, I, I was a big Mage fan, so when this came out, I was on track with it. But someone who just gets the Mage Twenty rule book and then they say, "Hey, I'm interested in Euthanatus. I'll get this tradition book." They might read through it and say, "I think they're talking about a lot of things that I'm I'm not up on." But uh, before we move on to the the sex, um, I, I just wanted to mention one other thing that um, one point where I disagree with this book is that it says that Euthanatus use a, a near death experience uh, to initiate members in into their, into their um, uh, traditions. It says that people who experience a near-death experience you know, uh, accidentally or, or on their own, quite apart from the group, that that is accepted and, and rendered valid. And I, from my point of view, I, I disagree with that. In my chronicles, I say that the near-death experience is only valid in the eyes of the euthanados if the initiate knows what they're starting and accepts it and says, yes, I know that this is a near-death experience. I choose it. And then they will give some training 
so that when the initiate comes to in the Shadowlands, they have enough basic knowledge to uh, understand where they are, to get around, and to get back home. And, and I think that makes the near-death experience much more meaningful. I, I don't like this idea that, oh, you were in a really bad car crash, so you're cool. Just come on in. So that's one point where I disagree. Well, the thing that always got me about it is, one, I like when they mentioned that originally the initiation was to shove someone into the Shadowlands, and if they were able to make it back, cool, you're a member of the tradition. Uh, that's <laughs> Talk about some tough love. We were talking about Iteration <laughs> X and the fact that not every people, not everyone makes it through the assay. This, this seems way more problematic. The other thing is is like just thinking speaking of a group that's focuses on destiny and fate like so you're leading this field trip to the underworld but it's fundamentally magical like what percentage of those result in paradox explosions i i don't like the idea of a initiation ritual you can botch like if a hermetic has like and now i will give you your diplomas like the <laughs> if you botch if you botch that like someone sneezes or farts in the middle of like a ceremony at ours college must or something but like if it's the agaba sojourn it's be like welcome to our tradition you're about to learn the mysteries of death shit a bunch and then like wrinkle appears or something like that i feel like that's that that's that's problematic um yeah so, so like the the agama sojourn is goes on the list of magical effects that if it were to ever occur in my story there would be no dice rolled i don't want my plot to in any way hinge on the result of that dice roll or to be like one of those things where it's like okay five of us are going into the underworld roll 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 roll, roll. dice on the table three of us make it Shit. So, <laughs> if you're yeah, gonna... <laughs> I, I can totally understand that. Tell us about the sects within the Euthanatos. Oh, the Euthanatos have sex for days, and I hope the the clarity of my speech does not get that confused with tantric magics. But they go through the different groups that feed into it, and this is a gorgeous white on black three-page spread. I think, uh, Adam, you already talked about the uh, Natatapas, the oldest existing sect that was founded uh, during the Himalaya Wars, which was this 600-year war between the Akashics and the Uthanatoi. Heavy emphasis on cultural practices of the Indian subcontinent. Tantric magic is a heavy focus. You also got the consanguinity of eternal joy, which is the cabal, or, well, it is list it is weird to me because it is listed as a sect, but to me, it was always a cabal but a giant one but i guess at a critical size you're just wind up being a sect they don't really have a unifying practice except what archmage vormas grand harvester harvester of souls kind of decrees it to be so that one that one i kind of felt weird it makes mention to their cult locations in baghdad cape town and miami and one of those i think is referenced in the book of chantries i don't remember which you also have helicar's realm which is this giant castle that is capable of Walking, and that's brought up in the Book of Chantries. You have the Mad Zimbabwe, which is closer to the fate, destiny, probability wing. And it was a group of, of seers and advisors. This is where we get Senex, who is e easily one of my favorite characters in Mage. He is referred to as the old man, more fully the old man of Cerberus, which I find interesting because Senex literally means old man. Uh, the English word Senate comes from the group, uh, literally means group of old men. Then we get more further abroad groups. And I feel like the Mad Zimbabwe gets mentioned for two reasons. One, it ultimately becomes a group in Mage Dark Ages. And two, it gave us Senex. So of necessity, it's going to going to be important. Pomegranate Dime, which is a Greco-pagan ritualists that 
follow pre-Christian Mediterranean faiths, ancient practices that focus on Persephone. Similar to that, we have the aided, literally death tale in Old Irish. It is the uh, last of the ancient Celtic underworld magical cults. They were crushed by the Romans, then they were crushed by Christianity and the Inquisition, and they're, now they're crushed by the fact that there's just not that many of them. The, the Order of the Black Willow, which is subject of them, fell into infernalism in the 1800s, so there's not a huge number of those running around. And then they get into the neat-ass groups. You have the uh, technologically focused groups, the locksmiths, I'm not entirely... How do you pronounce that? Locksmiths? I believe they were trying to draw a connection with the Hindu goddess Lakshmi. So I would guess that it's Lakshmiths, but... Uh, it doesn't could... exactly roll off the tongue. <laughs> it doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. And I could be wrong, so don't consider me an expert. So we will go with the fact that they are sometimes referred to as locksmiths. Uh, by the virtual adepts, and that is vastly easier to pronounce. But they are a group of technology-informed euthanatoi, and they take out online child predators and, and so on and so forth. So if you, it is just beautiful material for, for crossovers if you want an all-technomancer uh, chronicle. You have the Byzantine Golden Chalice, which is just, they straight-up assassinate bitches. And Senex has been offered to join some number of times, and he's just like, nope, nope, nope. It is an invitation-only group. They they were forced out of Byzantium during the First Crusade by vampires. I have no idea what happened there, but that kind of sounds badass. They did the they did the French Revolution thing of they are all simply referred to as Iago, and kind of appear as a singular presence. Then you have the kinder, gentler group that don't necessarily focusing on uh, on murdering bitches. You have the Knights of Redamanthus, who was the Greek judge of the Asian dead, which didn't know that was a thing until I read this, John. And they they accept just about everyone into their outlook. They're, they're very uh, plenary in the tools that they use. You have the Scholars of the Wheel, which focus on the reincarnation or metempsychotic Oh, that sounds weird when you put it in an adjective form. They focus on reincarnation and following avatars and yeah, so Yeah, they're on. a very small group. Yeah, and it brings some some weird questions in. Like, just as inside, they're like, should we start tracking the hallowed ones? And another one is, should we share our records with archivist Nicodemus Mulhouse? Which I'm like, yeah, Mulhouse! Um, easily <laughs> the greatest librarian in mage fiction. And finally, we get the Alberio, which are the, which named after the the star in the bill of the constellation Cygnus, which is a callback to Cygnus Moro, who is a member of the first cabal. And they are diplomats and ambassadors, and they have a little magical pin that lets you know that they're they're one of the good guys. And is a awesome introduction to the idea of either it serves as an amazing plot hook when you want your group that doesn't have any Thanatoic contacts to suddenly be tapped on the shoulder. There's literally this group of diplomats that, that runs around and uh, and works with chantries. Or if you want to have a investigative, diplomatic, or otherwise not necessarily combat heavy chronicle, that your characters could be doing that kind of cross traditional work. I think it gives a, a a good good in for that, and those are those dems the dems the sects. Yeah, yeah. The this group gave us about if you don't count the rogues about nine sects, which is uh, more than we get in a lot of the convention and tradition books. But uh, because of the very international nature of the euthanados, I thought that was was not inappropriate. Uh, there are a few groups that are not quite as interesting to me, but uh, a lot of good material here for storytellers to use in their own chronicles. Uh, I thought it was really cool that they laid all that out and uh, allow people to uh, pick what they're going to use. We've reviewed everything. We've gone over our opinions. What now, Adam? Well, 
I would like to share some adventure ideas that I came up with. Uh, this is something that, that uh, well, that's something that I enjoy, and uh, hopefully uh, those uh, listeners out there will uh, be able to come up with some ideas that are better than mine for their own chronicles. But uh, first off, the technocracy is starting to offer longevity to powerful and influential sleepers. In the process, these technocrats are emerging from well-defended horizon realms for the first time in years. Euthanato's leadership make it a priority to strike these enemies before the opportunity is lost. As the Euthanados start their raids, they find the technocrats are very well prepared for them. Is this whole thing a trap? And why are the fallen ones, the Nefandi, also emerging from hiding to strike at these same technocrats? Number two, an old Chakravant master has returned from umbral wanderings and established a training chantry to teach very traditional assassination techniques and rotes. He unapologetically follows the ancient ways, and several sects of the Euthanados object. Most Indian members refuse to condemn the new chantry. Characters are sent to investigate. They must prove their wisdom and respect of Chakravanti ways to be allowed to reside there. Is the old master and Nefandi turncoat? Are the characters ready to face the unvarnished traditions of this group? The lessons they learn cannot be predicted. Number three, one or more players is called in as an expert when vampires threaten an urban tradition chantry. The Euthanado's character learns the Nagaraja of the Tal Mahira are active, but he or she is forbidden from revealing this information to anyone outside the Euthanados. How does the Cabal change when the other players feel that one of their own members is hiding something from them? And number four, uh, following rumors of another maelstrom in the Shadowlands, an umbrud from the Eastern Court tells a Euthanados chantry that the Ashen Lady dances once again through the High Umbra. Great changes are at hand, and one or more players is charged with a sacred duty to serve the Lady. They must kill a child that is well protected by Brahmins of Vishnu to restore the balance. Mentors and other Euthanados refuse to advise the players. The players are being asked to act against their values for the greater good. Is it a test of dedication? A chance to grow beyond their understanding of morality? Perhaps the child is a vessel of harmful mystic phenomenon and must die so that others can live. So those are four ideas I came up with. And uh, if you have ideas better than that, I wouldn't be surprised. Write in to us at magethepodcast at gmail.com and let us know what you're running in your chronicles. And I guess my only closing comment is page 23 in the Four Turns of the Wheel section, my favorite quote from the Rinpoche. The order of reason holds the world like a fistful of sand. It trickles between their fingers and moves faster the tighter it is held. The age of enlightenment strips superstition and old wives' tales from the civilized. Yet in their hearts, most sleepers know that there are things in the darkness and their monkey nature both fears them and longs to learn enough to defend itself. Perhaps we can steal the sand without opening the hand. That was a very cool quote. And if you'd enjoyed us, email us at magethepodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at magethepodcast. Leave us a review on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify. Listen to us directly from anchor.fm. Promote us on the Facebook communities you participate in. Reach out to us on the White Wolf forums. I am Philly Curiosity. And until next time, and until next time, Mage Strong. And so until next time, Mage fans, truth until paradox, baby. <laughs>